Welcome to The Definitive Rap, where we report the truth about American exceptionalism. We love our flag, we love our country, and we believe in America. The Definitive Rap, where we respect people of faith, the men and women in blue, and our support for Israel. And now, your host, Bela Sebraff on The Definitive Rap. Hello, and welcome to The Definitive Wrap. I am Bela Sebrow. Thank you to our sponsor, Five Town Central. This show is being recorded on Yom HaShoah in memory of the more than 6 million Kadoshim, the holy, innocent men, women, and children that were brutally murdered by the Nazis. I am a child of Holocaust survivors. My earliest memories growing up were conversations that my parents had with other survivors about the atrocities that had been committed by those who viewed Jews as vermin, as a dangerous microbe or insect that only looks human. One of the questions that I always had, and every other person has, is why? Why did a so-called intellectual nation turn into killing machines? The Holocaust was not a war like other wars where it's about winning and gaining land, power, riches, or conversion to other religions. This was about the perpetrators exterminating Jews because they were Jews. That was the end goal. But why? Why did this happen? How could such a monumental crime happen? How was such a nightmare possible at the heart of Western civilization? With us today is Professor Dan McMillan, who holds a PhD in German history from Columbia University and a law degree from Fordham University. He has worked as a history professor and prosecuting attorney. Professor McMillan had a strong need to understand the Holocaust, and it has shaped his life. It, it has done so since the age of 14, when he first read about the tragedy, and he became fluent in German. Professor published a book, How Could This Happen?, that explains the Holocaust. Professor McMillan, it gives me great honor to welcome you to The Definitive Rap. Thank you so much, Bela. It's really good to be with you. Professor, the Nazis did not consider their actions as murder. In fact, you write in your book that in an interview with Franz Stenzel, the commanding officer of two death camps, first in Sabibor and then at Treblinka, And he referred to his work as human relations, human relations. Please help our audience understand that and how Stenzel related to the prisoners. Well, I I think that he 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 referred to his work. He referred to the murder. The murder is his work, although he didn't consider himself a murderer. But it's interesting when he was asked what he enjoyed most about his work, he said human relations with prisoners and What's really striking about it is that I think one one of the distinguishing features of the Holocaust is the way that you see the murderers and their victims living side by side in these camps. And it's not, you know, everyone knows that the Jewish victims will be murdered eventually. They're just a certain number who are kept alive uh, to help the Germans run the camps. And that the Germans, people, men like Stangl, who was the commandant at these two camps, felt no discomfort among them. Um, it's kind of a little bit like the manner of a 
farmer or a farmer's child moving among livestock that is that are destined for slaughter. And it it bespeaks a complete emotional detachment from an indifference to the victims that was made possible uh, by a belief system that held that Jews were essentially a set, almost a separate species from other branches of humanity, that they were genetically hardwired uh, to behave in a parasitic and destructive manner, uh, especially by fostering Marxism. That was the chief accusation against the Jewish people. That was the chief rationalization for, for wiping them off the face of the earth. If you could kill every last Jew on earth, you could permanently banish the nightmare of communist revolution. That was, I mean, that's, I'm oversimplifying here, but that is kind of, it's important to understand that train of thinking. And altogether, it's important, I think, also to recognize, and this is also, I think, what is really why the Holocaust frightens us in a way that really no other historical event does, is that these killers who were the elite, uh, highly functional, educated men of our most advanced society, held more generally that any human life was with that an individual human life had no inherent value whatsoever. Um, Jewish life was less than worthless, and that's why they wanted to exterminate every last person of Jewish ancestry. But on the other hand, uh, the lives of two million Poles who died, that is Christian Poles, in addition to the three million Jewish Poles who died under German occupation, more than three million Soviet POWs, they even murdered at least as many as 200,000 uh, of their own people who had disabilities just to save money for national efficiency. And it is this radical moral nihilism, this complete negation of the value of human life, which we see, have never seen before or since in all of history, I would contend that this is the feature of the Holocaust that makes it the only historical event that frightens people and consequently the only historical event that people want to deny happened. Yeah. I mean, there are no French Revolution denialists. There are no Protestant Reformation denialists. But Holocaust denial is a worldwide movement. And, and as you know, I think, Bela, that you know the, the protagonists of that movement, the people who are actually peddling this mind poisoning, I think most of these people are just inspired by truly vicious anti-Semitism of the worst kind and hatred of the state of Israel. But a lot of their, this this madness falls on fertile ground because really when you think about it both of us if if you could if you could give us a a solid reason for thinking that human beings are not capable of this would we, would we not prefer to believe that you know i'm not trying to excuse anyone who accepts holocaust now but i'm trying to say that this is so frightening and i think but i think there's another reason that we i think we can overcome why I think denial flourishes, and that is that so few people really feel that they understand how this is possible. And I think that probably the reason for that is, is that the full story is enormously complex. I mean, it took me an entire book to sort of put all the pieces of the puzzle together. Um, I guess a good way by, by contrast to make my point, I mean, you can summarize the causes of our civil war in a single word, slavery. There's more to be said, but that's what it was about. The Holocaust, on the other hand, you know, there's this, it's easy to drown in all the details of the chronology of how German politics evolves and why World War I and impact of World War I and 
the Treaty of Versailles and the hyperinflation, the rise of Hitler. And before you know it, you just have too much information to absorb. But on the other hand, I think we can absorb the most important single cause. And that is, the, is simply this. The men and women who did this saw absolutely no reason not to because they had decided that individual human life had no value. And therefore, if you had any motive, even not a terribly strong motive, to slaughter several million people, there's no reason why you shouldn't. And, and if we could go back in time and ask these killers, you know, why in heaven's name are you doing something so ghastly, so cruel? I feel confident most of them would shrug their shoulders and say to us, why not? They're just people. And that radical, you know, that, that loss of the value of human life among the ruling class of an advanced human society, that's something I think we can kind of explain in a digestible discussion. Uh, and I, I, I think there's sort of three factors above all that help us understand that. But before I get into that, were there any comments or questions you had? Because I haven't let you get a word in edgewise. So uh, before I go on to that, is there, was there anything, is, is what I've said so far reasonably clear or? Okay. Um, professor, the Nazis, and, th and this is this is just horrendous. The Nazis also turned the prisoner Jews into their assistants to help with their killings. Yes, and some even came up with their own ways to do it. Maybe because they thought it would be more humane. In in chapter three, you write about prisoner Blau, and um, how. When he he got off the train, his uh, well, when his father got off the train, who his father who was eighty years old, uh, he was supposed to be sent directly to the gas chamber to be gassed, and Blau had a better idea of how his father should die. He didn't want him to die by gassing. Can you tell our audience right. a little bit about that? Because I had to read that over several times. I'm a fast reader, but I needed to read that. That story, that that incident over several times so that my brain could grasp and comprehend what happened there. That I, I'm so glad that you that you focus on that. You know, Bela, and you're right, you know, it, it you you have to go through that story several times to absorb it and to to kind of try to start wrapping your mind around the meeting. So let me yeah, let me kind of restate yeah, it. So Shana, share with our with our audience. It's just Thank you. This no, was his I, father. Was really this was his father. It's his father. That's right. And 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 what it was is the you know, Stangl was again the the commandant at, at Sobibor and then Treblinka, and oversaw oversaw the mass murder by carbon monoxide gas of several hundred thousand Jewish victims, uh, and he was interviewed by a wonderful journalist Gita Sereni, while he was in prison in West Germany. He'd been convicted of mass murder. He was extradited from Brazil convicted. He was in prison on appeal, and Sereni conducted these, these interviews with him. So he got a real picture into his, his makeup, his psychological makeup. And it's one thing that she emphasized talking to his family, to his children in particular. He was in every, he was clearly a normal, psychologically normal human being before he began his career as a murderer and may have reverted to some form of normality after the war, his daughter said she could never have hoped for a more loving father uh, than her father, Franz Stangl. But in the camps, he 
had internalized the idea that the Jewish prisoners were not human. And thus, you know, since they had a human face and a human voice, you could interact with them in a way that superficially seemed normal. And he enjoyed their interactions, these interactions as human relations. And the example he volunteered to Sereni in the interviews of human relations that he had enjoyed is the story that you bring up um, in which Blau, Blau had been at Treblinka for a couple of months. He was the cook in the, the lower camp, cooking for the guards. And one day his father came in on a train from Vienna, an 80-year-old man, and Blau comes to Stangl's office, stands at attention, asks permission to speak. He's very worried. Uh, Blau explains what has happened, you know, that his father is there. Stangl says, well, you must understand Blau, a man of 80, by which he meant, you know, Blau, Blau's father was too old to be useful as slave labor, and so Stangl could see no excuse to spare his life. And Blau said, yes, he understands that he just did not want his father to die in a gas chamber. And so with Stangl's permission, he took his father to the camp kitchen, gave him a meal, and then escorted him to the door of the so-called infirmary, which is this building that is supposed to be a medical facility disguised with the Red Cross on the side. Uh, we don't know what Blau told his father when they parted company, whether his father knew that he was saying goodbye for the last time. But once inside the infirmary, the old elderly man would have been escorted down a hallway by a prisoner, a member of the so-called Red Squad at the camp. And then as he turned across, turned around a corner, he saw, he then saw what was going to happen to him. There was a, an open pit full of bodies with a fire burning it to reduce those bodies to ash to make room for more victims. And there was an SS guard who then directed, you know, Blau's father to stand on a plank at the edge of the pit and shot him in the back of the head. So Blau had gone to Stangl to ask the favor to arrange his own father being murdered by, by gunshot rather than by poison gas. And from Stangl's point of view, this did not make him a murderer. It made him a nice guy, you know, for helping out this prisoner. It also illustrates something else about the Holocaust that is so horrifying, which is just the, the, the I, don't, I can't think of any point in history where the power of one group of people over another was so extreme, where this proud, self-respecting man, Blau, cultured man from Vienna, is reduced to thanking uh, this mass murderer for uh, making us change in the in the means by which his own father is being murdered, and that is really. I'm glad you brought it up because it is really it's shattering uh, for me, and so it's. And that's a good way to sort of reinforce what we're what we're kind of underscoring here for our audience is that is this radical dehumanization and the denial of the value of human life in the definition of one branch of humanity, <coughs> the Jewish people as less than human, as vermin in human form, which is how they saw them and, and described them. And I think there are kind of three three factors in time that happened back then that also I do not see being repeated today in a society like ours or Germany or any other uh, advanced society, but that were specific to that time that can allow us to understand how this is possible. The first is the just the massive slaughter of young men in, in World War I, 10 million young men, including 2 million Germans, and as a fraction of 
uh, of our population today, to scale that up, that would be as if we lost 10 million killed on the feet of battle, not to speak of the wounded, that uh, lowered the threat, the bar for violence. It made violence acceptable in a way that it was not before. It made slaughtering millions of people for a political goal seem like an, an unremarkable fact of political life. And I think historians generally agree Without World War I, the crimes of Hitler, of Stalin, of Mao Zedong, of Pol Pot would have been inconceivable. Uh, a second factor is that people understood, saw the human race, the human species in a way that was radically different than we do today. Today, we understand we are one, we are one species. There is a human race, ultimately, at the end of the day. Back then, uh, everyone, there was a consensus in favor of, of what we now call social Darwinist racism. This was a, a kind of primitive, oversimplified application of Darwin's theory of, of evolution by natural selection to human society that we now know is, is preposterous and intellectually bankrupt. But back then, educated people throughout the Western world saw this as scientific fact and for one part, they believe that every nationality or ethnicity, you know, Jews, Poles, Greeks, Germans, Irish, and so on, was itself a kind of race to some degree, not quite a separate species, but nonetheless very distinct from every other race, that there was an elaborate hierarchy of value between the races because each of these nationalities had supposedly evolved more or less from the apes compared to each other and evolved in different ways that each had their own inborn genetically determined behaviors uh, that, you know, in our country, we introduced this immigration law in 1924 that's designed to cut off immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe because the old Anglo-Saxon stock uh, that governed our country came to believe that all these, you know, Greeks, Poles, Italians, Russian Jews, and so on, who had really come into our country in large numbers between 1890 and the early 1920s, that they were polluting the gene pool, endangering the racial health of the country. Um, and, and so I, that's just as an example to show that this, what the Nazis did was really the most extreme version of a kind of thinking that was a consensus in the Western world. Um, and this opens the door to the to the conclusion that some races have very little value or almost no value, and even in the case of the Jewish people, uh, are less than worthless, are pernicious. The other sort of upshot of social Darwinist racism is they, they believed that the history of the world was the Darwinian struggle for survival among the nations of the world, that warfare was really not a bad thing, it was a good thing because inferior races would get exterminated uh, or would die out and superior races, the fit races, would flourish. And it was the same process of survival by the fittest of the fittest that the human race would continue to improve genetically in future. And this, in, because of this kind of thinking, might mix right and also zeroing in now more, more you know, specifically on the thinking of Hitler and the people who followed him their goal was that the German genotype, the German race, would flourish uh, long-term, and thus the sacrifice of any individuals, um, even if it were only convenient to advancing this goal, much less necessary, was perfectly fine. And, that, and a good example, again, is the, 
the 200,000 Germans with disabilities murdered just to save money for national efficiency. Uh, the final factor that really produces this radical loss of the value of human life is that Adolf Hitler became, because of some successes he had had and because of the propagandistic genius of Joseph Goebbels and also because of the, the electrifying uh, sort of impact of his extraordinary gifts as a public speaker, he came to be seen as a kind of demigod in the eyes of his people. He saw himself as having, uh, as being the instrument of divine providence. His people often accepted this, and consequently, that belief in his greatness, he became the source of all law and morality in Germany. Uh, by definition, nothing that Hitler commanded could be illegal or immoral. And that, too, then erased inhibitions against the killing of human beings. It erased the idea that killing anyone could be, could be immoral, because if Hitler said um, these people should be killed, then it was morally right to do so. And so you have really what is a perfect storm, you know, of this, the, the loss of life, um, the, the social Darwinist racism, which is very different. Even though we have prejudice today, it's not like that. And finally, this, this political system that is unique in history, that has only happened, has never happened before or since, where quite literally the, the legitimacy of the government depended on this fantasy about the magical qualities of this one leader. And I, I just keep emphasizing how this is a perfect storm. And I think, I really think impossible to repeat in a first world country today. I mean, I do see, I mean, we do see genocide today. I think the fate of the Uyghurs in China counts as genocide in my book. Um, and we have all around the world, we have, you know, parts of the world that are already overpopulated where the supply of food and, and clean water is, is already inadequate. You have increasingly severe weather, droughts and floods that is going to be wreaking havoc with already inadequate supplies of, of food and water. And in so many of these regions in Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa, and so on, the governments are hopelessly corrupt and the political systems are dysfunctional and often violent. And I think that the, the potential for famine, war, and genocide in those parts of the world in the decades ahead is nothing short of terrifying. That said, on the other hand, we should not look at that or at the Holocaust as, as a reason to be pessimistic about ourselves, about the future of our civilization, because I feel very firmly as an historian, as I look at, especially at the last two and a half centuries, that we have made moral progress. We are better morally. I mean, you know, in our country, the founding fathers of our republic, who I think by the standards of any day were, were truly great men, a lot of them owned slaves and thought that this was morally acceptable. There is still plenty of racial injustice in our country today, but one cannot deny that we're, we're doing a lot better than we were 250 years ago. And you think just in, in my lifetime, I mean, 60 years ago, for a woman to aspire to the kind of job you have in the media, people would have laughed at you 60 years ago. You would have had no chance. So, and, and likewise, you know, racial discrimination in our country. I still think that a lot of progress needs to be done. But on the other hand, um, I really feel that we here in this country, for all, for all our shortcomings, uh, have become a much kinder and more decent society than we were 60 years ago or even 30. So 
And it's really important to not succumb to pessimism because if you give in to pessimism about the future, human future, that makes future genocides more likely rather than less. Because if you give up hope, then you stop fighting for making the world a better place. So I know I'm getting a little preachy here, but I feel no, very no, strongly about a, we, this. We need this. And, we and thank need you for letting me go on. So, so what, what, what thoughts do you have now or questions, Bela? Yeah. This was a genocide like none other. Yes. And, you know, racism, I mean, if, if, if we were to say or people were to say, well, we know different, but if, we were, if people were to say that it's about racism, racism is a dislike for people who look different from us in color. This was more than that. Yes. This, this hatred was more than that. And without Hitler, there would have been no Holocaust. So True. why Hitler? How did his bizarre, obsessive hatred for Jews cause such atrocities carried out by seemingly educated and sophisticated people? The Germans were known to be the most sophisticated people in their time. Help us understand. Well, you know, I want to. Just... I mean, who was he? Well, you know, I want to. I, I mean, just... he was the feuded. He was the leader, and he became a dictator. But they worshipped him. Well, they did. It, they worshipped him. He was he was their idol. Oh, I mean, no, I mean, they really, they, they was sort of quasi-religious, the feelings that a lot of Germans had about him, specifically about the worship of Hitler. There are a number of factors that came together. The belief, the hope for a charismatic leader, a a kind of superhuman leader who can solve your problems is something that happens in a number of political systems when the political system is in crisis. In the case Professor, of he was a mythic leader. But, but I'm by millions, about how he became by mil- millions of people, and they were so devoted to him. Yeah. Well, they were devoted to him partly, though, because his first eight years in office, he had this string of successes that were really spectacular. And I'll just name the two. Uh, and the other thing is that these successes were then presented to the German people in the most effective way possible by Josef Goebbels, who controlled all media. And Goebbels was himself a genius. He really should should count. He counts as really one of the fathers of modern public relations and advertising. I mean, I think most PR firms don't have a, a picture of Goebbels on their wall <laughs> for inspiration. But I mean, it's it's really true. Uh, but the other thing is Goebbels had a lot to work with because, well, first of all, Hitler comes to office in January 33, unemployment in Germany is 30%. Four years later, by 1937, they've got a labor shortage, the only major economy to get out of the Great Depression during the 1930s. Now, this happened not because Hitler was an economic genius, but because he was engaged in deficit spending, plowing money into rearmament because he wanted another war as soon as he could have it. If the German people knew he was taking them into another war, they wouldn't have been happy about this at all because they did not want that. But what they did know by 1937, I had my job back, my job back. But the American worker, the, the British worker, the American, the French worker, they don't have their jobs back. My leader is brilliant. The other is in the spring of 1940, uh, because really of some very good luck and some brilliant planning by a couple of generals, uh, not because of any genius in Hitler's part, really, he was lucky in this regard, but they they invade Western Europe and they they drive the British forces off the continent. 
they conquer France all in the, in the space of six weeks at the cost of 30,000 German soldiers killed. And Germans at that day would have compared this to their experience in the First World War, where they fight the same enemies for four years. They don't lose 30,000, they lose 2 million, and they lose the war. And after that, Hitler could do no wrong. I mean, it was just there, there, there was a, a public opinion report by the governor general of Swabia, it's a region in southwest Germany, who said all well-meaning people recognize joyfully and thankfully the superhuman greatness of the leader. And, you know, really, the people of any country in those circumstances, when confronted by those successes and compared to how terrifying their circumstances were at the moment he came to power, with the government having broken down and 30% unemployment, um, you can understand how this myth of his superhuman qualities could arise. Um, I'm not trying to defend the Germans or make excuses for them, but you remember they had very, the information they got was all controlled. And Hitler did have these successes, but again, the successes he had were overwhelmingly do more to dumb luck than, than to any skill in his part, because he certainly was not a genius by, by any, any standard. What will always be troubling is that the Nazis saw no, they saw no reason not to kill. That's right. They had no mercy. As human beings, how can anyone ever understand that? There is pity even on animals, yet none on the Jews who were slaughtered. No pity on the Jews who were slaughtered. And, and these, were, these, were, these killers, these perpetrators were able to go home, hug and kiss their spouses, hug and yeah. kiss their children, sit down, have dinner, and live a normal life. Yeah. Even, even people who kill animals... W wouldn't be able to function after doing what they did. It, it is indeed remarkable. How can and, anyone and, even make peace with that thought? Well, you know, I, I think it, in particularly in the case of the murder of the Jewish people, it really was um, that they, they bought into this um, racist ideology that thought that it was a matter of scientific fact that Jews were less than we're not really human that they were vermin in human form that they were a threat to the survival of germany long term uh and altogether of course that that other people it's yeah it's it it is really quite remarkable and one of the things that we have to remember is that the overwhelming majority of these killers in their psychological makeup and their emotional makeup they did not differ from you and me by one iota these are all because we're talking not about a tiny clique of misfits we're talking about 200,000 perpetrators at all levels. And most of them, because this is a policy of government, these, this is a policy carried out by successful elites, um, by people with, you know, at the Wannsee Conference, which was the chief planning meeting of the murder of the Jews in January of 1942, of the 15 participants, eight had doctoral degrees. Uh, and I kind of want to highlight that because a lot of people see it, they find it astonishing that people who are so highly educated can do this. And I like to, I like to, I kind of like to flag that, I think, because, and I also see this just in my own experience as I go through life, education is a very good thing to have. Yeah. Education about the Holocaust can help, uh, help us understand how bad racism is and how important it is to live in, in democracy. But education by itself does not necessarily make you a nice person, you know. In fact, in my experience, 
um, you know, because I, you know, I have all these advanced degrees. And so I hang out with, you know, with people who also consider themselves intellectuals. Sometimes, and this is very, very true of the elite of Germany, especially, uh, and an advanced education can lead you to think that you are better and more valuable than the rest of humanity. It can actually make can actually encourage you to be a bad person rather than help you be a good person. And that's really, I think, an important lesson also that I, I kind of like to bring up. How can our audience get a hold of your book? How could this happen? So it's How Could This Happen? Explaining the Holocaust. And it's, uh, you know, it was published eight, nine years ago, so it's no longer on the shelves of bookstores, but you go to Amazon. Uh, again, my name is Dan McMillan. And uh, uh, thank you so much for reading my book and for this opportunity to uh, share my ideas with you and your audience. Uh, okay, yeah. great. How yeah, could this happen? So how how can our audience get a hold of that? So it, it's it's available on Amazon. Okay. And it's uh, it's on Amazon uh, either in hardcover or on Audible or on Kindle. I think it's on Kindle. It's definitely an audible audio book too. Okay, so, great. And thank you so much for the opportunity to thank show you. Them my book. May the memories of all who perished be a blessing and never again. Professor, thank you for being here today, and may God bless you. Well, God bless you too, Bela. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you to our audience for tuning in and to Five Town Central. Thanks for listening to The Definitive Wrap with your host, Bela Seabrow. Be sure to tell your family and friends they also can catch The Definitive Wrap on Apple Music, Spotify, Google Play, and your favorite streaming service. See you next time on The Definitive Wrap.